Well, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. I got a very special gift in the mail this past week. I was so excited to open. Actually, my wife opened it for me. And inside were four boxes of brand buds. Woohoo! Can I hear it? You geriatrics out there, can I hear a woohoo? Yes. Last month, as some of you know, I had my second colonoscopy. I have turned 55. And so I was due for my second colonoscopy. And as I went in, now understand, I am really bad when I come out of anesthesia. I don't know what is up and what is down, and my world's twisted around. I thought I heard the doctor say, Mike, your colonoscopy did not go as well as I had hoped. And in order to give your colon better health, you need to eat a box of bran buds every morning. And I'm thinking, four boxes? That's going to last me four days. And my wife was very gracious, who was there with me, and said, Mike, he said, one cup each morning. I was so ecstatic when I heard one cup, okay. Yeah, honestly, with bran buds, I think the way they make this is that take it through, they take it through a very complicated process, and the sole goal of that process is to extract every ounce of flavor from this gerbil food. That, that's my personal opinion. I have come up, though, with a recipe that actually makes them taste good. You can try it yourself. One cup of bran buds, one cup of milk, and one cup of sugar. It works for me. <laughs> So I'm not sure if I'm going to have a healthy colon, but I will at least somewhat enjoy this durable food. Brand Buds is kind of like the geriatric symbol, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Okay, how many of you eat Brand Buds? I don't want to do that. But, uh, you know, gray hair is a symbol of us older people. Um, what, 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 what else? Uh, I have it written down here. Wrinkles. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know this stuff. Yeah. Wrinkles, they say, is a sign of older age. I prefer the idea of cunning. Cunning, that's the sign of old age, right? They say, I would rather be old and cunning than young and full of strength. Okay, but strength is like the sign and the symbol of youth, right? Some say that beauty is. I just want to say if that's the case, then I'm convinced my wife is still only 29. Um, some, some would say, though, that zeal is the symbol of the youth of our day. In script, Proverbs says it is not good to have zeal without knowledge or to be hasty and miss the way. And the idea there is yeah, you can be full of zeal, but if you don't have knowledge, you're just going to be going aimless with lots of energy. So instead of zeal, maybe energy, I can find myself in, as I'm getting older, energy fleeting. But I want to, to today, I want to rob the youth of that symbol of zeal. Because here is what this whole uh, series on Ignited is about the sense of fervency in spirit that doesn't just belong to the youth. Can I hear an amen from us older people? But when I die, I want to be more zealous and passionate for God and for the things of Christ's kingdom than when I was when I first gave my heart to Christ at 14. But we get this idea that to be passionate, to be ignited, fervency, by the way, fervency in spirit, that the, the Greek word there means to be glowing hot. 
Man, I want that glow, that hot glow of the Spirit of God to only increase in me with age, not decrease. It's just that, let's, let's face it, us older people, as we go through life, we can be so bombarded with the, just the stuff, the junk of life, and it, it can impact us where we wonder, well, if I step out in faith, will God meet me? And God, the, the, the enemy can rob us of that zeal, rob us of that, you know, we were singing the song this morning, falling in love with you. Church, that is not just for those who are young. It is for us too, and it is something that we grow in and intensifies in our life. So I just want to clarify that, that what we're talking about here, being ignited for God and for the kingdom of God, being ignited from being impassioned for him, has nothing to do with youthful zeal and has everything to do with falling in love with him more and more and more. Amen, church? Thank you. Psalm 95. Now, you're turning to Psalm 95, but uh, I want you to stay there. I'm going to read two verses to you, Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. Now, my superscription, so that's, the, what, that's kind of like the title that's given before Psalm. It says this, a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, I'm going to suppose that when he was in the desert of Judah, it was probably either when he was fleeing from Saul or when he was in the desert in 2 Samuel 6, and God said, okay, come out of the stronghold and attack the Philistines. Now, we're not exactly sure when this was, but you get the, the impact of where David is at just in the first two verses here. Excuse me, first verse. I'm just going to read Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I, I, I need us to hear David as he is trying to relate with us and the Spirit of God is now, I, tr I pray, is going to speak to your hearts through what the Word of God has to say. Because many of us, just like David, we're in that dry and I think the uh, King James says thirsty land. It's that dried up land. When you, when you look over land and you see cracks in the land and you know no water has or rain has fallen on that land for probably months, if not years, and it becomes so dry. And David gives us a picture of what happens when the circumstances of life like he is in and pressed in about him. And if it's a time in which he was fleeing from Saul, it was a time in which his life was on the line and wondering, am I even going to live to the next day? And he is pressed in about and he himself gives us a picture that he is weary. The land is thirsty and weary. And yes, he himself is weary. And he says, my soul is thirsty and I am hungry for you, God. And you get this sense of desperation due to his circumstances pressing in about him. And he is crying out to God. In essence, let me paraphrase, I need my soul satisfied. And I'm going to ask you, is that, is that where... Perhaps you are at this morning. You're persevering through difficulties over and over, and you have become weary. The boss has harassed you throughout this past week. You come into the weekend 
and you are weary looking for some refreshment, perhaps finances are hitting you, we're coming down to the end of the month and you're seeing more months than there is money and you're wondering, okay, God, here we go again. What is going on? And you are weary. Your marriage, it just seems like you can't get that ship off the rocks. And you are weary. Temptations, you feel it's put a hook in your jaw. And here we go again. And you, you feel like that dog with the, the, the stuffed rabbit and he's just shaking it furiously about. And you feel like that stuffed rabbit, you know what I'm talking about. And you are weary. And I want us to talk about this sense of weariness, this desire for satisfaction that I believe we're going to find in Psalm 95, or at least an answer in Psalm 95. So if you're not there, Psalm 95. Now I'm going to start partway through verse 7. I'm going to do this because that's what the author of Hebrews does. I don't know if you're familiar with this section of Scripture, but it's actually quoted at length from the point that the entire portion that I'm going to read to you is actually found in Hebrews 3. And this is what the psalmist says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did for 40 Years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. I want you to feel the heart of God as he lays out this psalm. This is in his voice. And he is in essence saying, my people have allowed their hearts to grow cold. Temptations have spoiled them, lured them away. Their hearts have become hardened. And if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3 where it's quoted, the author talks about a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away. It's the deceitfulness of sin as he says in verse 13 of Hebrews 3. It's that deceitfulness of sin that has set its hook and you, you feel compelled and you're going down this pathway that's going further and further away from God. And that people have become wearied, they have gone astray, and they have not stayed the course. And their satisfaction is being found in other things, and most certainly not God. He says they are a people whose hearts go astray. Maybe this morning that would be a very good picture of where you are at. It's like, man, I, I've been down this road. I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I feel defeated. I, I feel weary. I, I feel like I'm being pulled off into this direction. And the bottom line is that the love of God in my heart is growing cold. And the enemy wants to snuff out that fire. And I said before, this fire, this fervency of spirit, this passion for God, this love for him is not just for youths. 
It is for all of us, and it is something we grow in. But we'd have to admit, we feel dry. I feel like that fire is going out. We feel perhaps wayward. My question to us this morning then is, what is the answer? What is the answer? What is the remedy? What's the antidote, if you will, to this and what's the enemy it is and for for the people at Meribah and Massa it it was a time in which their hearts were being revealed and they saw the power of God with the 10 plagues with the parting of the red sea they saw it with the manna in fact the chapter before was when, when God first began to send the manna, what an incredible miracle that they experienced. And yet, they couldn't believe God for that day in which they were thirsty, in which they felt like they were going to die, and all they could do was complain, and their hearts were led astray, and their passion and their love for God certainly had grown cold. What? is the answer. Now, I don't know about you, but I have read this psalm many times. And can I confess to you now, I've walked with the Lord for over 40 years. I can't tell you how many times I've read this psalm, many, many times. And as I have read it, I have always viewed it as two different psalms. Kind of like Psalm 95a and Psalm 95b. And I just read to you Psalm 95b. I'm saying this to you because I want us to look at the beginning of this psalm because I believe it's the beginning of this psalm that actually brings us the answer to that question. What is the antidote? What, what is it that can keep this fire in my heart going so that I don't constantly be, I'm not constantly being led astray? Now, I'm not going to read all of it because this is a two-parter. I'm going to finish up this, uh, this topic within the series of Ignited next week. Let me just read like Psalm verse one. Again, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to come back to this verse passage actually next week. But it says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And I hope you hear in those words, rock of our salvation, because it was at Masa and Meribah that God told Moses, okay, bring some of the elders and take them to this rock. And it was a short distance from where the people of Israel were, but it was right there at Mount Sinai. And he said, strike the rock. And I want these elders to witness this miracle. And Moses struck the rock and water gushed out. And it satisfied the thirst of the entire community of Israelites who had been converted. He is the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Verse 5, come let us bow down in worship. Church, say that word with me. Worship. Please, again, worship. I want this to be impressed in your mind. Come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. It is not coincidence that Moses was a shepherd. This describes, this last verse describes a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd and now he is caring for the sheep of Israel. God himself, though, is the great shepherd. Jesus portrays himself in John 10 as the what? 
good shepherd. He is the one who, as verse 3 says, or 4, and he is the creator. He is the one who is the sustainer. He is all powerful. And now in verse 7, he is the shepherd. And do you not think that God can fully satisfy, fully provide for your every need? As if he says, I hope you get this and that you listen to what God is trying to say because there was an entire generation who missed this truth, this principle, and they were led astray and they could not enter the promised land. So what then is this principle? It is worship. It is worship. I I want us to see that when we worship, There is something like dynamic that happens in worship that is to impact us. My fear is that for the vast majority of American Christians, that impact is minimal. It's minimized rather than maximized. And I truly believe that within the church of America that is regularly led by church culture rather than biblical culture, if I could phrase it that way, we, we, we don't understand this idea of worship. And I, I, I'm going to come back to that in, in just a moment because I, I do believe that we, as an American, as, as the American church, we, we are not getting this. Worship, worship is the language of God's love. Worship is the language of love, love for God. Now, I'm going to unwrap that a little bit today and even more so next week. But the answer here, what will keep my heart from growing cold and hardened is worship. Now, maybe you've not seen that before, this idea of worship, because perhaps some misconceptions. What I want to do is, first, let's understand that this word worship, at least in the English language, is found in or used two different ways in the New Testament. The first one, it's a Greek word. It's latruo, and it means to worship or serve, or the noun form would be service. Proskuneo means to actually prostrate yourself before God or bow or bend down and worship him. Now, Latruo is found, for example, in Romans 12.1. It says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable worship or act of service. And this type of worship or service, if you will, is something that the Christian engages in 24-7. It is everything that I do is an act of service and yieldedness to him and therefore bringing glory to him. That is not what I am talking about today. As important as that is, that is not what I am talking about today. I think the pro- part of our problem is people have latched onto this idea, Romans 12.1, and this idea of worship, Latruo, and they say, well, you know, worship is something that we do every day. And, and 
fine, but my concern is if you do not understand the concept of proskuneo, we will downplay what I am wanting to say to you this morning. We will downplay. Oh, that's just something that happens like in everything that I do. No, proskuneo is not. This type of worship is what we just engaged in and we're going to engage in after the sermon. Now I'm going to let you know right now that the sermon is going to come even earlier in the worship service next week because I want us to implement what we have learned next week. When we do that a little bit, we're going to sing two songs after the sermon. Next week it will be even more because I want the bulk of our worship to follow the sermon. So this morning, I want to talk to you about that act of worship, not that everyday activity in 24-7, 365 that we engage in in bringing glory to God, but specifically this idea of worship like we just engaged in and we'll do so after the sermon. So what we see here is that this type of worship, this proskuneo type of worship, this coming before God and exalting him at those moments in our lives, this is the answer. This is the answer. And there is something at the heart of the worship that we want to look at. What then is it about worship that keeps these fires stoked? I want to look at three wrong views of worship, because in part, this is what keeps us from worship. If you don't understand the concept of worship and the dynamic that takes place in worship, it is just singing to you. And honestly, there are many people who will say that worship is the introduction to the sermon. Now, in our service, we, we do have worship before the sermon. Um, we have mixed that up in the past, and we have had the sermon at 10 o'clock, and worship followed it. It doesn't matter. But many who engage in worship, they see worship as an introduction to the sermon. It prepares my heart to hear the word of God. I'm not going to deny that it does that, but that is not its goal. The goal of worship is not to prepare my heart to hear the word of God. Actually, if anything, I would say that the word of God prepares my heart for worship. Because worship is an end in itself. It is not a means to an end. Worship is an end to itself. Let's test this. In the book of Revelation, where do you see the sermon? Anywhere? And yet they engage in worship all the time. And and I would challenge you, if that's your view of worship, worship, you know, I, I am here at Powerline more for the word because I'm just not a worship kind of guy. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge I'm gonna warn you. You better be careful because your fire you are primed for the devil to put your fire out. That's how true I believe this principle is. This is so key in the Christian's life. Now I'm not gonna judge my brothers and sisters throughout America, but I get this sense in which we don't get this. We we do have this sense. The worship is a means to an end. 
<clears throat> which is actually is, is my second point. Worship can, for many of us, is a means to an end, to, to be happy. I worship so I can be happy. I worship so that I feel loved. The reason why I worship is, um, and, and, and I suppose this has happened. I've heard testimonies of people when we worshiped, gold dust fall, fell. That my silver fillings turned to gold fillings. I have a very close pastoral friend of mine, and this happened to his wife. Uh, so, but is this why you go and worship? Is this the essence and the heart of revival? These are the trimmings, if you will, okay? The laughter revival. I, I recognize much of the laughter revival was out of order, and it was very fleshly. But I have seen and I've had close pastor friends of mine in which this happened to them, and they were so skeptical of it. And yet God healed and restored their heart in the midst of a service like this, in which they were overcome with laughter. If we're going to look down upon the laughter revival, we should also look down upon Finney's weeping revivals. It's just an expression of emotion when a human being encounters the all-infinitely powerful God, it does something emotionally to us. But what I am saying is those are the trappings and the trimmings. They are never the goal of our worship. Can I ask you, for example, why do you tithe? Well, I just want to give. It's a command. Many people give so that they can get back from God because they've heard the promise, if you sow, you will also reap. And not only will you reap, but it will be poured out into your lap, overflowing. So I give, so I will get back. Can I tell you, get your heart right? Because that's never a biblical motive for giving. No, God does say, okay, I'm going to press you here, test me and see if it's not true. That does happen and God does open the windows of heaven. But that is not why we give. Why do you obey God? So that by obeying him, he will bless you? I'm going to tell you right now, if you obey him, he will bless you. But is that why you obey him? Or do you simply obey him because that is what he has called you to do? But if you obey him so that you are blessed, God then is obligated to always bless you and that he rose this concept of grace. I don't know if you followed that or not, but I don't obey God so that I will get from God. But will I? Will I be best? And yes, we will. And so I, I word it this way. You've heard me preach on this concept of grace. But when we are obedient to God, we simply position ourselves to receive his blessing. It's up to God when and how he chooses to bless. But I do not obey God to be blessed so that I'm happy, so that my marriage will be great, so that I will be financially blessed, whatever. I obey God in it as an end in itself. We worship God as an end in itself. Why do you tell your wife, men, that you love her? Do you tell her that you love her to kind of grease the wheel so you can buy that new car? Well, I mean, I hope not. However, when we say, I love you, does that not stir something in your heart? Is there not something that is truly satisfying and connecting with your wife when you tell her sincerely now, no hidden agenda here, I love you so much. 
And that, my friends, is the language of worship. It is this right here. This is the stuff of relationships. Worship is the stuff, if you will, of our relationship with God. Now, lastly, worship can be seen merely as a duty to perform. We enjoy it to the degree in which we enjoy, I don't know, the beat, the melody, how well the band plays. You know, some at Paraline, some of our greatest worship, don't get me wrong, I love the band. Band, I think you do an awesome job. Um, sound team, I think you do a superb job. There have been times in which some of our greatest worship times was when it was totally acoustic, in which it was just one instrument or, or just a handful. And the Spirit of God met us. Now, I'm all in favor of musical instruments. But is that why you worship? You know, do, do, you, do you love to sing Kumbaya around the campfire because you love the melody? How many of you have ever sing, sung Kumbaya? Does any of you even know what that means? Kumbaya. Okay, what are we even singing here? It means come by here. Okay, and, and we are actually inviting Jesus to come by here where I'm at. And yet many of us were engaging. It is as if when we engage in worship, we are just singing kumbaya, kumbaya, whatever that means, kumbaya. And it's nonsense in our minds. And we are disengaged from this dynamic of worship and why God has his people worship him. Because I'm telling you that when you thoroughly and fully engage in worship, God is going to stoke the fires. But that is not why we worship. That is a byproduct of true, sincere, passionate. And yes, worship is to be emotional. I'm going to talk about that even more next week. But many people in Christendom today, they are like Christian Stoics. You know, it is, Christianity is intellectual. It's grasping the deep truth. It doesn't, didn't it even say that we worship him in truth. So that we need to get these rich truths. I was reading online a blogger and Sometimes I can have a really bad attitude about bloggers. Not my wife. She blogs. I love her blogs. But some people, it's almost as if because they couldn't make it as a pastor, they're going to be a blogger. I'm sorry. I'm being blunt this morning. And they, just, they are just, they, they want to be critical of everybody and everything in Christianity. And man, they are the hub of truth. Come to me. I got the truth for you. And, and there is something wrong in the heart of many bloggers in America today. And I was reading one blog. I'm not going to mention this person's name. And they just said that they talked about the 10 top songs we need to get rid of. Oh, Lord, help me to be so gracious in my words right now. I, I wanted, halfway through, I wanted to send this person an email that would not have flowed with the Spirit, I am sure. I just, th there was criticism. It was all about this song right here just doesn't have the, the theologically deep truths of the faith. Let's discard it. Do, do you not realize that when Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 went into battle, he had the singers leading them, and, they, and, and all they sang over and over and over and over and over and over and over again was, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That was it. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That is a deep theological truth, people. It's just that 
It is so simple. And we miss many times the simplicity of something. Now, not all hymns are like, there's so many hymns out there that I love. I love them. But we, we got this hymnal. When I, I grew up in a traditional church, and we, we got this hymnal. And I found every single time that when we were done singing a hymn, I had to sit down and reread it to know what I had just sung. It was awkward. That's not the way I talk today. Um, and, you know, they, they placed the verb at the very end of the sentence. That it's like Yoda speech, yeah, okay, honestly. And, and it was hard for me to follow. Now, now, that honestly, yes, that may be part of my fault, and I, and I understand that, but I wanted to sing songs that could connect with my understanding, my mind, and my heart. And these songs didn't. And the, the, the melody was hard to follow. The words were awkward. Were they deep spiritual truths to this day? I'm, I'm not sure because I'm, I'm still not sure I really understood the hymns. Uh, that, nothing wrong with that because there are songs sung today that are, uh, you kind of step back and wonder, how is this a worship song? So it goes both ways, but here's my point. What is my point? Here's my point. Worship, or our engagement in worship, is not simply a duty. Well, this is what we're supposed to do. You know, this, this is, you know, I'm ex when I like worship, it's because of the band or the melody. And that was a rocking tune. Loved it. Okay. And I'm sure that worship in heaven is going to be loud, people, but it's also going to be very gentle, soft, and sweet at times. Check it out. There were times in which they shouted in heaven. There are times in which just the worship was like rushing waters. Have you ever been in a waterfall and someone's trying to talk to you? You can barely hear them. And this, was, this is the volume and the intensity of the worship in heaven at times. And yet also you read, and there was silence for the space of half an hour in heaven. Just this standing there in awe of God. Overwhelmed perhaps in his presence. 30 minutes, no one talking. The saints were there, not just the angels. The saints were there, okay? That's kind of incredible if you ask me. But worship, you know, I, I, I'll take a moment. I do find it interesting that when we go home after a, we call it a celebration service here at Power Life, that we talk about what? What's the substance of your conversation if, if you talk about the service? Isn't it almost always the sermon? Yeah? So you're, you're talking about the sermon at home? And I'm not opposed to that. Thank you, by the way, if you do that. Thank you if you go online and you listen to the sermon again because you want to get more out of it. Thank you. In our home, we do talk about that. But what we also talk about, and maybe even more so, is the worship. And, and, and some on the worship team will, will talk about some of the things that they missed. And really, you missed that? I, I, I couldn't hear it. But we talk about 
our experience in the presence of God. And with that in, in mind, I'm going to read. You don't have to turn. You might want to write these verses down. But Psalm, 40, Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Do you get this sense of longing and yearning for God? Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? The sense of anticipation, this longing, I want to meet with God. Why, to hear a sermon? No. To worship God, to be in his presence. Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. I mean, it faints for the courts of the Lord. It how do I express this? Do you understand the concept of fainting, the sense of longing so much that if you don't have it, you feel like you're going to die, okay? It is that fainting and longing and yearning for the courts of the Lord. Why? Because they're laid with gold? The, the temple was, by the way. No. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And in between those two passages, he talks about the satisfaction of those who go up and ascend to the temple to worship him. And now I do want you to turn to this passage, and that would be Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, money. Wisdom. Is that better? Godly character. Come on, church, am I getting close? One thing, I, this is what he seeks, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is David. Technically, he's not permitted to dwell like a Levite in the house of God. So he's obviously speaking metaphorically here. What does the temple represent? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What is this that he is seeking? Let's unwrap this metaphor. He does it for us in verse 8, and he, is, he, he gets right to the heart of it. This is the one thing I seek. My heart, verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his, what church? Face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. He talks about the beauty of the Lord. Does that mean that we have to have a vision of God? No. This is what he is. This word face is translated many places in the Old Testament as the word presence. When Esther came into the court of the king, without requesting to do so, her life was on the line. And it says she came before the face of the king. 
Now, your version, NIV or other versions, will say she came into the presence of the king. To seek his face is to seek the presence of God. I want you to think about this. The presence of God. I'm already, maybe for those of us like me who come from this traditional background, maybe you haven't studied worship a lot, but you would immediately, what do you mean the presence of God? Come on. My God is omnipresent. Is, raise your hand if you believe God is omnipresent. Okay? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is in the sanctuary whether we are here or not. And yet when we are talking about his presence or his face, what I am talking about is, and you can write this down, this is the common phrase used, it's his manifest presence. When Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, he had gotten the Ten Commandments, came down, and do you remember what the children of Israel were doing? Yeah, they made a golden calf. Aaron said, Moses, I don't know where this came from. It just kind of popped out of the fire. All right, they, they made me do it. And they, they began worshiping the calf. Moses came down. He took the two tablets and he threw them down and broke them in, sim, in prophetic symbolism that you had just broken the laws of God. Not just the first and second, but by breaking them, you've broken all of them. And you have broken, as it were, the very heart of God. He goes back up on the, the, the top of Mount Sinai. And do you know what he asks for? the face of God. If your face, your presence does not go with us, I, I don't, I don't want to go into the promised land. And you, and you see this dialogue between God and Moses, and he is in essence communicating his heart that would, would go something like this. God, I want your presence more than your promise. I want you far and away more than what you can do for me. What God could do for the Israelites is give them a promised land. They've been wandering. They're going to, they've been waiting for 430 years. This is a longstanding promise. This is something they've been stirring up in their hearts. But God, I would rather have you than what you have to offer me. Psalm 22, verse 3. And I'm going to, read from the NIV, and I'm not sure why the NIV reads it this way, and I'm only going to do that to emphasize the point. Psalm 22, verse 3. You're probably familiar with this verse in a different translation. This is what the NIV says. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. Now, I've believe there are 12 words there or 14. I counted them the other day and didn't write it down. You do that. And if you count those words, 12, 14. And yet the Hebrew has only five. And the NASB is, and the King James is much more literal and translates it, yet you, Holy One, are enthroned on the praises of of Israel. That word praise is not singular, it is plural. And this word translated enthroned literally means to sit upon or to dwell in. So here's the picture that the psalmist is giving us that when we worship, 
when we are praising God, he is actually inhabiting, as the King James says, or, or dwelling in or seated upon our praises. That is his manifest presence. Again, God is everywhere, but he chooses to manifest himself. God is everywhere, and yet he chose to dwell between the two cherubim on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. God is everywhere, and yet when they were dedicating the temple, the glory, the manifest presence of God so in cloud form so filled the temple, the priests could not stand. They got weak need, fell to the ground, and it says they could not minister before the Lord. They were overwhelmed by what? By the manifest presence of God as they began to worship him. And, and I'm trying to remember the song, and I believe that it was that one. Also, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Or something similar. Very simple song, very simple song. And God showed up in a very manifest, evidenced way and overwhelmed them. They were speechless. To worship is to encounter the presence of God and therefore God himself. When we do this, it does impact us in numerous ways. But these ways are, are not the goal of worship. Now, do you follow me? When we worship and we experience God and his presence and we begin to say within ourselves, my soul is satisfied there is a dynamic that happens in this interchange in worship as I seek him. But it is not my goal. It is not my goal to get something during worship. That's a byproduct. That will happen if I'm truly seeking God in worship. I can remember so many times just in, in worship before God. I, I can't say that there was something awesome about the worship song, though I'm sure the worship song was excellent. I can't say that it was something particular about the words, though the, the words may have triggered something. But as I began to worship and lift my hands to him, I was immediately overwhelmed with an emotion. And, and I cannot even tell you what that emotion was. I just would begin to weep. And, and some of you have seen me up here, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. And I don't know why. When, when Saul, King Saul, was coming after David, and David was with uh, Samuel the prophet, when Saul arrived, he could not apprehend David. Do you know why? Because there, the presence of God at that moment when he encountered Samuel overwhelmed him. It says he fell on the ground and prophesied all night. Wow. He experienced the, the presence of God. And in essence, God was saying, you know what? You may be the anointed of the Lord, but you ain't touching this anointed. Let me tell you that. And just overwhelmed him with his presence. Sometimes, you know, we are emotional beings. Worship should be emotional, never our goal. Worship isn't good or not, depending on how intense our emotions were, but we are emotional creatures. When emotional creatures made in the image of God, 
connect, if I can use that word, with God and, and are in his presence, there are sometimes when we as finite creatures, and, and I'm just going to, I'm going to word it this way, an, al- an analogy. You try plugging an improper cord into a huge outlet or vice versa, and you turn that machine on and pff, there can be sparks. It's a, two tw- it, it, it's a 110 and you're plugging in a 220, and, and I'm sure that can't happen because they have different things that plug into a certain type of 220. But anyway, you get the idea. There's sparks that fly when we are connecting with God. Sometimes just being in his presence, it overwhelms us. Being in the presence of an infinite God. And I am finding that there are times in which you're going to get overwhelmed. And, and I myself, when that has happened, I, I can't put a finger on it. But I do know God is ministering to me. And at that moment, I am just overwhelmed as I am in the presence of God. But here is what happens in this interchange in worship, in which as I worship, God ministers to me and he ignites or reignites this fire in my soul. I'm going to touch on very briefly five things that happen in worship. And I am going to be brief because I want to give time for worship afterwards. I would like you to write these down. Number one, just five things. And there's many more, by the way. I'm just choosing five. Some of them will be briefer than others. Just five things that happen in worship. Number one, when we worship, number one, we magnify God. I am sure when I just mentioned magnify God, you kind of thought, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like a no-brainer. Really? Yeah, like, when I worship God, I praise him. A- any light bulbs kind of go off on that statement? It- it's kind of like, yeah, pastor, I mean, of course. But here's where I'm going with this. Luke chapter 1, and you give you the right verse here. Verse 46, Mary has been supernaturally impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She has been set up for shame in the natural anyway, but she is set up for honor spiritually because she is going to be giving birth to, you know who, Jesus, the Son of God, a little overwhelming. And she's in hard circumstances because when she starts showing church, she is going to be shamed completely, utterly shamed, and the potential will be for her to become ashamed. But this is her response in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. That Greek word there for magnify is the Greek word megaluno. You know what mega means, like big. Megaluno means to magnify or enlarge. The truth is, Now, follow me here. Whatever we bring close to us in our view becomes much larger than what is in the distance. You follow that, right? If something is close to you, it's going to appear much larger than what is far away. Here's what we tend to do. We take our problems and we look at them and we worry about them and we're filled with fear and they are so big. And God is off in the distance and he's so small. And we're wondering, yeah, why should I even give this to God? This is too big. Why why would he be concerned about little me? 
You know, I've, I've tried God. Oh, I love that one, right? Yeah, I've tried God, and he didn't come through. And I'm going to tell you this. If you really, truly try God, he will come through. It's just that when we try God, it's because, you know what, God, this is on my terms, buddy. All right, this isn't 50-50 at the table here. Is you come the whole way and you meet my needs, and if not, then I'm going to tell everybody I tried God and he doesn't work. You know, he's like that little Jesus genie. Rub the lamp and you get three wishes, okay? And what we need to do is we need to bring God close. And all of the problems in the distance seem so small. See, that is the essence of worship, of magnifying God. Now, how do you magnify the infinitely large God, okay? We only do it in our minds because in our minds is where the battle is, and we tend to downplay God's significance, God's power, God's love, God's truth, and we pump up the, 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 uh, the realities of life's difficulties, and they become so large, but it's when we engage in this thing called worship in which we connect with God and we magnify him that he begins to show us just how awesome he is and truly how small our problems and struggles and difficulties are. And I'm going to tell you this, the more you do that, the more you will fall in love with that great God. The second, and, and, and by the way, when David is running from Saul, he wrote many of his worship songs. I don't know if you knew that. Because it was in the midst of that crucible of difficulty that God birthed these songs that as David worshiped and magnified God, these problems, the threat on his life became so small. And this flows now into the next thing, number two. We're reminded of who God is and what he has done. I, I love Psalm 145, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 145, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We don't have time for that, but I am going to read to you verse 7. Psalm 145, verse 7. He's just talking about how one generation will commend your works to another. And he says... Verse 7, they will celebrate, I love that word, they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I mean, this is a, worship is a celebration. Now, there, there are quiet moments in worship and there are exuberant moments of worship. Some people make a distinction, okay, that's worship and that's praise, however you want to see that. The bottom line, I'm kind of all including all of these in this concept of worship. But when we do this and we are truly celebrating his abundant goodness, this is what's going to happen. As we're magnifying him, this is what's going to happen. Look there in verses 15 and 16, for example. The eyes of all look to you, and here's the truth. Yeah, I lost where I was. There we go. Oh, and the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God 
God impacts us with this truth. We're reminded over and over as we worship him, yes. And, and we're in the midst of this difficulty of financial struggle. Yes, God will provide for me. He will provide for me. Number three, I'm going to confess to you that I do not fully understand this. But number three, confessing plants truth deep in our spirit. Confessing plants truth deep in our spirit. Even if it's the simple song, give thanks to the Lord for your love endures forever. It's not here today, gone tomorrow. It's not a 10 on Tuesday and a 1 on Friday. It is a 10 plus, if you will, every day of the week, God's love endures forever, even in the midst of your trial right now, in which the enemy is whispering in your ear, God must really hate you right now. Look at this difficulty. You think God loves you? No, 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 no. God's rejected you. He loves these people over here more than he loves you. And all of these lies begin to flood us, and we're invited to confess truth. What does Romans 10, 9 say? That if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. It doesn't just say, just believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. I mean, it could, but there is something about the power of confession. When you confess it with your mouth, and God knows this principle, he created us, come on. When we confess with our mouth, it takes that truth, Jesus is Lord, and it begins to break us open and begins to plant truth deep in our hearts. That's what worship does. As we are worshiping God, we are confessing with our mouth, and these truths that we're singing about who God is gets planted deep in our hearts. When the truth, however, is planted deep in our hearts, what happens to the lies? They get sifted out. You're familiar with the law of displacement. If you fill up a jar with water and you begin to fill it with rocks, what happens to the water? Does it go anywhere? Of course it goes somewhere. It starts spilling over. Why? Because of the law of displacement. You start putting your heart, filling your heart with God's truth like in worship, and it begins to erode these lies of the enemy that he has been trying to convince you of all week or all that day, whether it would be, God doesn't love me, he's rejected me, he must be against me, or I feel this worry and fear, maybe God's not paying attention, maybe he's going to let this one slip by his uh, notice and, and, and the enemy's going to get the, the upper hand on me and maybe God's not going to come through. That is not the truth, though. And so when we confess with our mouth these truths and God plants them deep in our spirit, it stirs up faith. And I'm going to tell you this right now. When, when this begins to happen, it is going to ignite that fire in your heart that the enemy has tried so hard to put out through all of these circumstances that you're beginning to get overwhelmed with and you're bringing close to you and they seem so large compared to God who seems so tiny off in the distance. And these truths begin to displace these lies and the fire begins to get ignited again like that raging forest fire. 
You know, I want that love of God to be like those forest fires, and I'm going to use a negative analogy, excuse me, that we have seen in the newspapers, maybe not recently, but in which firemen, even their lives were lost because they tried to put these fires out, these forest fires, and tried so many different ways to do it, and, and they just couldn't put them out. Now, that's a negative, and I want you to imagine the love of God burning in your heart like that, and the devil cannot put it out. Man, that's the, that is the fervency, the passion for God that I want in my heart. And then lastly, here is an ironic truth. David says in Psalm 63, I read it, my soul thirsts for you. And the truth is, the more we drink of God in worship, the thirstier we get. This past Thanksgiving, I was impacted by a truth. As I was about 75% done with my packed plate of Thanksgiving food, my son had beaten me, finished his plate, and his was at least as full of my, as mine. And he starts on a second plate that is at least as full as my first, and he finishes before I finish my first plate. It's almost as if the more this guy ate, the hungrier he got. What is going on? Now, I do remember, maybe some of us can remember when we were young. This is kind of like the like another symbol of youth. We could eat whatever we wanted and then get away. Now we're like, oh, man, careful with that dessert. Don't think I'm going to try that. So this may not grab you as it will maybe some of us younger people, but the more you eat, the hunger you get, the more you drink of God in worship, the thirstier you are. Psalm 63, I read verses 1 through 2 to you, and I'm going to conclude with this. Worship team, could you come on up? I'm going to read the verse 1 again to you, but I'm going to read through verse 5. I want you to just... Listen and allow the Spirit to take some of these truths about worship and begin to bring them home to you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory as in worship there. Listen to this. Because your love, mm, because your love is better than life. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Church, could you stand with me? Can I ask you, is, is your fire going out this morning? the enemy robbing you of your zeal and your 
desire to even follow God today, I invite you, when you worship, let's truly worship with an un, a clear understanding of what we are doing. God is here in our midst, loving on you. You are in his presence. Drink deeply of him and be satisfied. Let him ignite your heart. Would you do that, God? Our goal right now, God, is to simply worship you. To seek your face to be in your presence. But I am also asking you, God, out of the richness of this worship, ignite our hearts again. In Jesus' name.